uh, social desirability bias is the technical term. When pollsters ask questions and people give the answer that they think they're supposed to give, if you look on the back, 94% of people have read the Bible in the year that should be. 94% of people claim they have read the Bible in one year. Uh, it's not a bad discipline, though. Actually, one of the things that the elders are doing right now, we're going to talk about it tonight, is uh, talking about uh, making some, uh, some deliberate plans, some intentional, uh, engaging in some intentional disciplines to, for us to develop spiritually. And um, this, uh, uh, reading the Bible in a year is, uh, is one that can really be uh, fruitful. And, and you may find it useful um, to do that maybe with a translation that you're not as familiar with. Um, or, uh, or you, you may want to do that. Uh, house churches may want to consider doing that together. Or you may want to buddy up with somebody who would be willing to, to meet and uh, once in a while to discuss what you're learning, uh, maybe uh, help hold each other accountable. I did tell my friends at school that every Advent, we, we buy a stack of these read through the Bible guides so that by Lent time Lent comes, people have something to be sad about uh, and seek forgiveness for. Um, <clears throat> So it's, uh, it, this may be the kind of thing that you have tried and not managed to do, but I, uh, I'd encourage you to, to consider doing it. Um, speaking of school, I, I thank, you for, for, uh, thank you all for praying. Uh, and and some of, most of you know, I think I'm, I'm, taking, I'm basically spending half of the week this year in New York uh, doing uh, additional studies at General Theological Seminary, which you may also know uh, has been a uh, hot mess. Uh, the faculty went on strike, most of them, uh, six weeks ago. Uh, thanks be to God, they're coming back to the classroom on Monday, and hopefully we can finish out the semester with some semblance of uh, meaningful education. Um, but uh, I appreciate uh, all your prayers for me and for the school as we've been going through this. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how God is, is going to be working through all this, but, uh, but thank, you, thank you for praying. Please continue to do that, because in some ways the hard work is, is, uh, is still to come in terms of reconciling relationships uh, among leaders there. So our text this morning is in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of Torah. Now, what I think Paul is not talking about here, by the way, is mortgages. Some people have said that no debt remain outstanding means you should never enter into any debt relationship. It also doesn't mean you can't start tithing until you've paid off your student loans. What Paul is doing here is one of these clever little rhetorical devices that he does all the time. He's taking this idea of obligation that he had been talking about in the previous seven verses when he talks about our obligations that we owe as citizens, and he pivots on that, sort of uses it as a hinge to start talking about something else here, talking about the kind of love that we're obligated to show to one another. But what is love? When I think of that question, two things immediately spring to mind. The first being, of 
course, that great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that Paul wrote that you hear read at weddings all the time. But I have to confess that if I'm honest, even though I am a pastor, even though I have been doing this for a living for 15 years, even though I have read out and spoken about and expounded that chapter from 1 Corinthians at weddings, however many dozen times over the years, I do confess that the first thing that comes to mind when I ask that question, what is love, is actually this.
What? Pop culture just kind of has that effect on us. It just kind of gets in there in your brain, and you get these phrases that stick in your mind, and, it, and you get it from you get it from music. I mean, I you know I grew up listening to music in the seventies and eighties and nineties, and uh, so I was disturbed when I found out this week my daughter Kara in her little glee thing at her school, is doing the Foreigner song, I Want to Know What Love Is, the 1984 power ballad where the lyrics go, I want to know what love is, I want you to show me, I want to feel what love is, I know you can show me. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I'm a little concerned about what the choreography will be for this. But we... We've heard all these songs over the years, haven't we, about love? Think about that all-for-one song that John Michael Montgomery did, I Can Love You Like That. It's always fun when accidentally somebody follows that up with the Dionne Warwick song, I Know I'll Never Love That Way Again. Think about that 1986 song by Peter Cetera when Chicago was just getting too hard for him and he had to break out on his own, and he did that song, The Glory of Love. Remember that? I am a man who will fight for your honor. Oh, I, I, yeah. Remember, we did it all for the glory of love. There is so much foolishness out there when it comes to the way this word gets used and abused, the way it gets thrown around. And frankly, it leads to the kinds of tragedy that we find on the cover of our bulletin. The brief tragic history of a relationship inscribed forever on a bathroom stall. I mean, that's the nature of love when you're feeling it. This is going to be forever. It turned out for Matt and Jessica it was like a month. And part of the trouble is that we get our definition of this word love messed up. Now, the truth is, it's a word that does have many facets. Some of you, many of you, I'm sure, have read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. If you haven't, I recommend it to you. He talks about how there are four Greek words that are used to describe these four different kinds of love. Storge, philos, eros, and agape. Storge is is affection. It's the kind of, of love that you might have for a pet or a pet might have for you. It's also the kind of natural feelings of fondness that you, that you might have, even for things that maybe not, don't even reciprocate that to you. He gives the example of the way a child feels about this crusty old gardener who would never even pay attention to it, but every time he sees him, he's filled with this kind of fondness, this affection. Uh, that's storge. Philos is, is, is a friendship kind of love. You, Philadelphia is Brother, city of brotherly love, Philos is love, Adelphos is brother. Philos is the kind of love that you have with a friend or that siblings can have. Eros, as we know, of course, is erotic love, the kind of passionate love that uh, the guys from A Night at the Roxbury are uh, trying to chase all throughout town from the China Club to the high school prom all the way to the old age home. But the love that 
Paul is talking about here in Romans 13, the same one he uses, same word he uses in 1 Corinthians 13, is agape, which is a different type of love. It's not a love that is about simple affection, as fine as that is. It's not a love that is a a brotherly or a friendship love, and it's not erotic or romantic love. Agape is a, is a self-giving, even a self-sacrificing kind of love. Agape is the kind of, if storge is the kind of love that a child has for its mother, then agape is the kind of love that a mother has for her child. This is the same word that we find in, in a few other places in Scripture where we get these little pithy statements about love. So in 1 Peter 4.8, for example, he says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now there, of course, he's quoting from Proverbs where, of course, the writer is using Hebrew and not Greek, but it is that kind of self-giving and self-sacrificing love. John, in his first letter, 1 John, also 4.8 by coincidence, He says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. And so you may have heard people use that phrase, God is love. But unfortunately, that too has led to quite a deal of, quite a good deal of foolishness. But it's foolishness with a religious veneer, which makes it all that much more obnoxious and all that much more dangerous. Quite frankly, that word love is often used by people as an interpretive key to unlock the true meaning of all kinds of things in Scripture that don't mean what they say they mean at all. They will say, well, it's because of love that I'm going to believe this verse that says that I'm not supposed to do something, says that I should do that very thing, right? God is love. So, for example, if I'm feeling affection for somebody that's not my spouse, if I'm feeling erotically drawn to that person, maybe if I just like that person very much as a friend and I want to be in a relationship and step out on my marriage, well, that's, that's love. And so we do it all for the glory of of love and God is love, so that that means it's okay. No, it does not mean it's okay. The commandment says, "Don't commit adultery." That's pretty much a, a, a firm guideline as to whether or not that's okay. But we can use that as a sort of hermeneutical key, as a as, as a uh, universal solvent to dissolve anything we read that we don't like. We'd use it as justification for all kinds of harmful ethical choices. And love isn't the only word that people do this with. They do it with other words like justice or truth or peace or holiness. You know, they're not, not uh, even a hundred years ago in, in the, for the sake of holiness. People in our tradition, both our tradition as evangelicals and the Methodist tradition uh, managed to push through the uh, amendment to the Constitution prohibiting the sale and importation and distribution of alcohol. They were well-motivated, most of them. They thought it was important to promote holiness by making it impossible for anybody to drink, but then, as it turned out, they ended up generating organized crime, as we came to know it in the 20th century. 
Now, the problem comes when you give words like love or justice or truth, when you, when you give them a capital letter. When you say God is love, and then you say God is love with a capital L, then you find out that it's really easy to switch that around. It's not consistent with the grammar. It's not logically correct. But pretty soon you start saying love is God, not God is love. And then it's not hard to go on and to take that capital G and make it a lowercase so that saying God is love ends up becoming love is a God. Love is my God. And because you've made love the subject, and because you have given it the capital letter, then you get to fill that word with whatever meaning you like. And you get to define love according to your preferences, according to what thrills you the most. You end up making this love that you have created your own idol. And you will do it all for the glory of love. But really, you're just doing it all for what you want. So don't read, misread this when Paul says that the one who loves his fellow man has fulfilled Torah. When he says that love is the fulfillment of Torah, what he is not saying there is that really you don't need to worry about all the little specific stuff like don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. The, the main thing is just that you love. I don't think Paul is saying that that means you ignore all those specific commands in the Ten Commandments or any of the 613 commandments we have in Torah. Paul would be horrified to think that you would take that, take what he has said there to mean, really, it just doesn't matter. As long as you're loving, then that's all good. Now, what Paul's doing here, and this is common at the time, is to say, you know, if, if you had to kind of sum it all up, if you had to put, a, put it on a bumper sticker, if you had to take all of Torah and, and put it in a 20-second in a elevator speech, here's what it is. Love is the fulfillment of Torah. The great Rabbi Hillel was asked by a disciple, he said, okay, standing on one foot, teach me Torah. So he said, okay, whatever's grievous to you, don't do that to your fellow man. The rest of it's commentary. Now, go study the commentary. The, the big question for us in this, I think, has to do with how this cashes out in our lives. And, and the, the commentators really do disagree on this. Paul does something in this passage he doesn't usually do. He says... Love does no harm to its neighbor. Uh, I'm sorry, before that he says whatever. Um, he says who, he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Usually when he talks about other people, he will say those who, the one who loves his brother has fulfilled the law. So clearly there he's talking about another Christian, another person in the body of Christ. Uh, or he will sometimes talk about love for the stranger. And then you know that he's talking about somebody who is outside, or talk about outsiders, literally, those outside the church. So there you know that he's talking about our relationship with people who are outside the church. Here he just uses ton heteron, the, the other. 
And so we don't know. It's tempting, frankly, in this situation to do what Yogi Berra said, and when you get to a fork in the road, take it. I think I'm probably inclined to think that there are sort of two levels to this, that in this section of Romans, as we've been discussing, Paul is talking a lot about the way in which our unity as a body of Christ is a testimony to the watching world about the power of God that is part of the way that God is taking territory, taking hostile territory for the kingdom, is that he's using us. And so I think that the kind of love that we will show others corporately is the the kind of love that is enabled when we, within the church, show that to one another. That's, that's my best guess at how we ought to understand that. But, but certainly, what Paul is trying to tell us here is that, is that love is important. Love should characterize everything we do and all that we are. That this kind of Agape love, this self-giving, this self-sacrificing love is the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated in dying for us. And that's the kind of love that we're to show to one another. So let me finish with that familiar passage in 1 Corinthians. where Paul says, now let me show you this most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor, I surrender my body to the flames, but if I have, love, have not love, then I gain nothing. See, love's patient. Love's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, that'll pass away. For we know, in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, and that which is partial and imperfect will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways and bad pop music behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
See, Paul didn't write this chapter for a wedding. And maybe if he had, he could be rich on licensing fees, but he wrote this as part of an extended passage in 1 Corinthians, where basically in chapters 12 to 14, 11 to 14, he is yelling at this church in Corinth for their failure to show one another the kind of love that they ought to be showing. He's not talking here about romantic love. He's not talking here about the kind of love that a husband and wife or a bride and a groom are feeling as they stand there gazing into each other's eyes or as they stand dancing in the banquet hall. He's talking about the kind of love that enables a husband and a wife to get through the next week and the next month and the next year and the next decade. The kind of love that enables a church to get through its second decade. It's the kind of love that enables the church with a capital C to, in spite of all of its divisions, now coming into its second millennium, be faithful to Jesus' commands to represent him well, to be his ambassador. This is the kind of love that God calls us to. This is the kind of love that, frankly, we can't pull off without his kind of love, without the energizing work of the Spirit within us, giving us the ability to love in a way that's patient and kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, to love in a way that isn't rude or self-seeking, to love in a way that isn't thin-skinned, easily set off, to love in a way that doesn't keep a catalog of all the ways that you've been wronged. To love in a way that doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church where our relationships with one another are characterized by that kind of love that you have taught us about in your word. By a love that is not willing to take the easy way out. A love that's not willing to ignore its obligations to you and to one another. love that's willing to do the hard work necessary to reconcile relationships. And it always is prepared to rely upon the work of your Holy Spirit to make this superhuman kind of love possible for us poor, ordinary sinners. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand?